Hello and welcome again to Winter's Tales here on Aran Sound. We were continuing with the third episode of our rather grown up, frankly rather eerie fairy tale, Dance Beneath a Scarlet Moon. In the previous two episodes, we've seen the Aran honeymoon in the year 1919 of James and Heather, disrupted by the appearance of the mysterious Shona, who seems to work a seductive spell upon First World War survivor James. A spell to which he has, frankly, by the end of our last episode, succumbed. And now, episode three of Dance Beneath a Scarlet Moon. Heather woke to find James gone. The other side of the bed, a, a wasteland of crumpled sheets thrown back. The pale curtained glow by which she saw this, suggesting she had slept clean through to morning. Rising, drawing back the curtains, she confirmed this, with a view of the wooded slope outside descending to a sea-shimmering silver-grey in the pale autumn sunlight. The mainland beyond, a faint floating wisp of a thing. Looking closer below, she beheld James, fully dressed, crossing the track which ran past the house, stepping through the gate of the small garden and approaching the front door. She could see he had a suitcase in both hands, and another one stuffed under his right arm. She drew on her dressing gown and hurried down the stairs, just as James crossed the threshold and dumped the luggage on the hallway floor with a wearied grunt. Oh, that's the last of it, he said, looking up at her. Took me two trips to bring it all up. It was all, can you believe, still down there in the fairy glen, snug in the back of that trap. No sign of that old rogue of a coachman, Huey. Doubtless he's still sleeping off his evening's libations in some Lamlash stable yard. He didn't seem the sort to just abandon our luggage overnight out there in the wild, ventured Heather. Uh, folk on Aaron, James replied, are sometimes a wee bit more relaxed about getting a job done than folk over in the mainland. Uh, one learns to adjust. Anyway, it gave me a wee touch of exercise. Help me uh, build up an appetite for all that food in the pantry we've still got to work our way through. You must have wakened early, she said, stepping before him. My darling, he said, more seriously, stepping closer, taking both her hands. I barely slept at all. I'm sorry. Sorry for being anything but the husband you deserved last night. James, J James, I, I told you, she began. Well, 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 let me tell you, he interrupted. This thoroughly disappointing wreck of a man woke this morning from as much sleep as he got, determined to put behind him all that's happened before. All his uh, missteps and all the scars they left him with. The better to step before you this morning, bright at least as an, as an autumn sun, and show you gift you the life he still has in him. Let's, darling, let's have breakfast and then let's get out there, out in the wilds of this beautiful island and, uh, well, see if we can't be as wild and beautiful in ourselves. Uh, yes, but, um, uh, what about, um, you know, our, our guest, said Heather, nudging her head in the direction of the reception room. What? what? Oh. Oh, yes, um, her. Uh, well, she's... She's gone. Gone? Uh, yes, darling, I tactfully sent her on her way first thing this morning. Hopefully she's at least halfway to the far side of the island by now. I, uh... I do hope you were tactful, James. You weren't entirely so with her last night. Uh, last night, he said, well, 
I wasn't quite myself last night, perhaps. The pressures of the, the big day, concerns over well. <laughs> Performance. But, but this, this is a new day. And there's no one here now but you and I. And free of all that parading and inspection yesterday. I don't see why we can't. Can't, like you say, find our own private way of being married. He kissed her. She kissed him. As convinced as he sounded of the, the future those kisses might have begun. After breakfast he proposed a walk over the high ground towards the nearby waterfall at Glen Ashdale. And perhaps beyond that to the, the, the Neolithic graves on the, the adjoining hillside. Heather, who had enjoyed days walking in the Campsie Fells and the, the hills beyond Neilston with other nurses from Pollock House, enthusiastically donned a pair of walking boots from the cases he had freshly brought up the hill. And together they ventured out, out onto hillsides of rippling green and moorland brown. Birds flitted among the taller treetops, a buzzard squealing against the vastness of the sky. A couple of deer glimpsed watching them from higher ground still, but no hint nearby of any other human figures other than far, far below as a, a few remote specks wandered the roadway between the, the houses of Whiting Bay and the rocks and sand of the shore. As they went a little further, a low rumble began to make itself heard amid a deep vertical crumple in the hills, soon followed by a, a glimpse of white water tumbling steeply into the glen below. Soon after, on a little wooden bridge, they crossed the swift-flowing river immediately above the falls, before continuing down to a, a precarious brow of turf from which they directly overlooked the vertiginous drop of, well, not simply one waterfall, but two. Either one of which might have been enough to start a dizzied gasp from a bystander. The one plunge directly above the other. A rocky pool affording the swirling peaty waters the briefest of pauses between the two steep cascades. Heather's eye followed the white torrent all the way down to its final crash and spray among jagged black rocks and lengths of fallen tree in the narrow gorge below. Her gaze rose and in rising stirred her her fullest wonderment yet at the sheer sprawling beauty of this place he had brought her to to begin their shared life. Frightened? asked James, standing close at her shoulder. Frightened, she said. Well, it is a, it is a long way down, darling. This place, she said, stretches long and high and wide everywhere you look. And darling, I've a heart to meet it all. You have a heart indeed, he said. A tolerant heart. A forgiving heart. A patient heart. I told you, she said, we have the rest of our lives together. Plenty of time to find a, a path through the woods. Why, we might even be through them already. It is a beautiful island. Dear God, Heather, he said, turning her gently to face him. The beauty in you, it, it puts the damned island in the shade. Why don't we, why don't we, why don't we make man and wife of ourselves right here? with the waterfall for witness. It, it, it is rather a steep drop down there, darling, she replied. Think of all the other lovemakings we'd lose out on if we went and uh, rolled over that edge. <laughs> Eminently practical as ever, my darling, he said. That's why you were such a splendid nurse. But come on, away from this uh, fearsome brink. It's my bride, not my nurse, I'm taking on this walk. And I'm for taking her somewhere a, a wee touch more comfortable. Together, hand in hand, they continued away from the falls, 
up over another brow of turf and heather, until, as the morning sun broke through more fully above the sea now, closer below them, they wound their way on to a, a little plateau, marked at a couple of points by the sharp upward juttings of rough grey stones. Well, there it is, announced James, the giant's graves. <laughs> the, 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 the what? Well, <laughs> he went on, that's the old story. Actually, uh, here and um, here, see, they're the remains of uh, prehistoric burial mounds. Uh, see the little uh, sockets in the ground between the stones? Uh, they had a big excavation up here about, well, must have been uh, 20 years ago. Apparently there was quite a necropolis up here back in the caveman days. Almost all of it gone. Uh, most of it, uh, the stonework winding up in uh, farmhouses or dry stone walls down there in Whiting Bay over the years and over the centuries. Uh, maybe there's a stone or two from here, I have to confess, in my uncle's place. Well, that might at least explain the unruly spirits, ventured Heather. Explain the... Explain the what, said James. Well, our guest last night, Shona, Heather smiled. That scent she had of, ooh, something spectral, chasing her along the track outside. What did she call it? Um, the, the, the she? The she, um, yes, uh, the fairies. Yes, that's right. And we did have our own little accident in the fairy glen, after all. Oh, yes, he said. Of course. So we did. So, <laughs> who knows, maybe there's, maybe there's something to it, she chirped. There's nothing to it, he replied. She, fairies, spirits. Since the days when this place was hosting its heathen funerals, folk had been hiding from hard realities with fairy tales. But sometimes you can't hide. And sometimes, well, sometimes reality surprises you. Pleasantly, even, by turning out so much sweeter than you could have guessed. Sweeter than any children's bedtime tale or the, the, the happy ever after at the end of it. Over here, darling, here, sit on the edge of this rock here. The Neolithic dead won't mind, you see. Over there, a, a whole lot of amateur archaeologists have already gone and chiselled their names into the rocks. As uh, eating our sandwiches here ought to be too much of a desecration. And eat their sandwiches they did. A wealth of them having been prepared from the substantial remains of the previous evening's feast and stuffed in waxed paper within the little haversack James carried. They sat very close in the rock's narrow edge, looking over the slopes and speckled houses of Whiting Bay below towards the single great hill, which in the waters past the bay's far end, formed Holy Isle, with its lighthouse perched at the far end. Further on, towards the interior of the island, loomed the bare and jagged mountains of the Goat Fell range, the rocky juttings of the ancient graves among which they sat like a very modest imitation of that vast array of spiky granite Pinnacles. The sheer age of the island, ancient and sacred when the long ago tomb builders first buried their dead, seemed to seemed to shiver through Heather for a moment, as if an, an echo of whatever eruption first shoved this land above the water and drove those peaks hard against the sky, had whispered itself her way fluted through the bones of dead men far below. James seemed to sense her shivering. He put an arm about her. They kissed gently, tentatively at first, but then more fulsomely, the purchase of that single arm becoming a reciprocal embrace the remainder of their sandwiches tumbling from the rock's edge to the grass below as they shifted tighter together. A moment passed when together they seemed capable of anything. And Heather, in all her inexperience, felt any such thing 
was something she could more than live with. And when distraction came, it came with its own kind of charm. For those spilled remnants of lunch swiftly brought a, a flock of little brown birds fluttering out of the nearby bushes. They settled among the crusts, singing out their delight, singing so high and bright it became impossible. First for Heather, then rapidly for James not to uh, break off lovemaking for, <laughs> for, for laughter. In turning fully to take account of the, the happy dance of the little birds among their feast, they inadvertently scared the cheery chirping thieves back towards those overlooking bushes, from which they wailly pondered a, a second course. Heather reached down, picked up what was left of one crust, began breaking off crumbs and uh, throwing them into the opened gap, the better to lure the birds back across it. You have a lot of love in you, Mrs. Holgarth, said James. No feeling jealous, are you? Here you come. Here, birdie. Here, here, here. Here, here. Uh, no, he said. No, uh, when the birds are fed, I suspect there'll be more than enough love left for me. Darling, she said. Turning to him, even as she began tearing apart another crust, the birds get the scraps. But you get the treasures. I'll cater to them in the bushes. But why, I'd climb those mountains over there for you. <laughs> the great black bird flapped itself out of nowhere, its wings and beak and black eyes suddenly immense in the gap between Heather's outstretched hand and those smaller birds. <laughs> the beak, dagger sharp, snatched away the crust. So fiercely its sheerest point, ow, ooh, ooh, jabbed her finger. Even as the crow, was it a crow? It seemed so much larger than any crow she'd seen before. Fluttered aside to a perch on another upright rock at the far side of the ditch that had once been a grave. She noted a thin trickle of blood from the bud at the end of her finger. Darling, James seized her wrist, drawing the hand towards him wadding up his handkerchief and pressing it to the shallow cut. Heather, Heather, are you all right, he said. Didn't see the damn thing coming at you. It's just a crow, she said. A big, ugly crow and a, a small, ugly cut. It's not a crow, he said. The damn thing's a raven. A, a, a raven, she said. Thoughts of the, of the Tower of London and the works of Mr Edgar Allan Poe, a swirl in her mind. Yes, your man's right. A raven it is. The voice, lilting yet sharp, came from that other little outcrop of burial stones at the far side of the little plateau. They both looked that way to see the young woman from the previous night, Shona, rising from the stone against which she had been sitting. Her own appearance there as abrupt as that of the greedy raven. She wore that same long white dress, but now with the addition of a green sash knotted about her waist and hanging down in tassels at one side as a gypsy might wear it, a thin green scarf lightly knotted about her wealth of wild black hair. In the old days, the ancient days, or so they say, when one in the clan was up for burial, she continued, drifting towards them. They lay the body out up here, in front of what was, well, it was so much more than you see the day. A real building up here in the side of the hill, a great home for the dead. But the body would be laying outside, and a great door, they say, would open in the side of one of those grey mountains, away, way, way up over there. And a whole black cloud of ravens, huge and hungry, would come flying all the way over here, pick the flesh off the bones, the eyes out the skull in seconds flat, then flap up back there, leaving nothing, nothing but skeleton behind. This bone torn away from that bone in the scuffle. And then 
primitive men, they'd uh, disconnect the bones even more. Skull this way, leg bones that way, rib cage this other way. And then they'd bury all them bones in separate nooks of the great place they had here. This house, this palace of the dead. And then they'd close the doors. Even as a great door closed at the back of all them ravens in them mountains up there. James was on his feet. Where did you come from, he said. You're not, a, you're not following us, are you? Sometimes, she went on, ignoring him. It was some great warrior who'd fallen. I asked you if you were following us, James pressed. Following, she said. No, not following, just wandering, maybe. I thought you'd gone wandering back to your side of the island, which uh, happens to be way, way over there, he said, with a backward jab of his thumb in the direction of the mountains to the north. Did I? she said. Say that. I think you did. Well, maybe I got fond of you last night. Fond of you both. Wanted maybe to hang around, let you know how I felt about yous. That's sweet of you, said James. But as you know, it's our honeymoon, and we'd really like to spend some time alone if you don't yawn raven hurt you, she said, approaching Heather, who still clutched that wad of now blood-spotted handkerchief to her finger. It's nothing, said Heather. Well, nothing, really, a scratch. Shona tugged the handkerchief from Heather's grasp, cast it aside, then sank to one knee on the grass immediately before the rock on which Heather sat. You're a nurse, she said. You should know better than that. There's things you can catch from the wild creatures out here. But there's simple ways of dealing with such things, simpler maybe than any nurse would know. Grasping Heather's hand, Drawing it towards her, she uh, spat upon the slender cut at the finger's end, then drew the finger swift between her lips, sucking lightly upon it. What in the name of, cried James, taking a step towards them. Heather signalled that it was, it was all right. And indeed it was. For there was something soothing in the soft, damp warmth Shona had applied to the cut's sting that sting now dwindling to an almost pleasurable tingle. Shona let the finger slip clear of her lips and Heather, looking at it now, struggled to discern any trace of a cut there at all. She looked from the now bloodless finger to Shona, still kneeling there, black eyes and faintly reddened lips, fixing on her a smile intent as the ministrations of a moment before. There, said Shona, you see, you're maybe no quite the nurse I am. That's enough, said James, catching Shona's shoulder, all but wrenching her to her feet. Uh, we gave you a night's shelter. Uh, you've let us know you're grateful. Then all's well and good between us and you can be uh, uh, getting on with uh, uh, getting wherever you're going. And we, which is to say my wife and I, can get on with enjoying a nice private honeymoon with the minimum of uh, distractions or interruptions. Understand? James, Heather chided, unsettled by how blatantly impatient he was acting. I understand, Shona smiled. Got to know you well enough last night to know what it is you're needing. Soldier. That's enough, I said, and here he dragged her aside so roughly he all but wrenched her off her feet. Go, go, leave us, and he pushed her further away. Heather started to her feet in a, a belated attempt to, to, to calm his anger. But Shona smiled, and with an almost flirtatious tilt of her head said, I'll leave you. Don't worry. Enjoy your honeymoon. 
I've a whole other kind of moon to call my own. Come look for me under it. Should you need me? And she was wandering off, starting down the narrow track, descending to the glen below. James, said Heather, well, well, what have you got against the poor girl? She was only trying to help. She, she, she hung around too long last night, he replied. I, I, I'm not having her hang around any longer today. Today, I swear, I'm letting nothing, nothing and no one come between us. It wasn't her who came between us last night, said Heather. Not really. It's for us to sort out our own problems, and it's nothing to do with her. And we are sorting out those problems, aren't we? So, so, so why lose your temper with her? He looked away awkwardly, in the direction Shona had gone. <sighs> maybe, maybe it's myself I was losing my temper with, and well, she just happened to be standing nearby. And the loss of temper is uh, likely down to impatience, impatience with myself for, for not yet being the husband I want to be. And impatience, maybe... To get you back to that house. The house we can now, now finally have all to ourselves. To start making up for lost time. Come on, darling. Let's, let's start walking back. She took his hand as she rose to her feet. Yes, darling, she said. Of course. And I won't even ask to stop for the scenery. Oh, wait. Wait, hold on, on a moment, what's this here? She was looking at the grass, at the foot of the stone from which she had just risen, making out a, a thin green crumple on that grass. She reached down. She picked it up. Oh, look, darling, it's that, it's that scarf Shona was wearing. It must have fallen off when you wished her that brusque farewell. I'll run after her. Give it back. No, no, darling, James said. Forget about the wretched scarf, but drape it here across the stones while we get home. If it's that important to her, I dare say she'll come back for it herself. But look, James, it's lovely. Look at the weave work. And look at that raven or whatever it is still perched there, eyeing us up. It would be rather a shame if it flapped over and stole this to, to, to line its nest. It's kites, darling, that uh, line their nests with stolen linen, not ravens. Uh, or I don't think so, anyway. Well, well, let me take it to her all the same. She worked wonders on my poor little finger. And she wasn't such a terrible house guest, was she? I'll take it, he said, snatching the scarf off her. She must be already halfway down that hill, and well, I can walk faster. Fast after her, and fast right back, and then fast straight home. Well, do keep your temper this time, called Heather, as he started off. I'll be so impatient to get back, he replied, I'll barely acknowledge her presence. Heather watched him disappear below the brow of the hill. More certain than ever, everything was going to work out. And then the raven called out at her back and flapped away, reminding her the world was a slightly harsher place, at least, than she might be tempted to take it for. Hurrying down the rough slope, with its loose rocks and unruly bushes, James lost the smile he had worn for Heather, fist clenching tight about the scarf he held bundled in one hand. There was no sign of Shona amid the rough undergrowth, and he was beginning to wonder if it mightn't be a, a good thing if he failed to catch up. But then he rounded the next dip of the descent, and there she stood, with a smile for him, sharp as the spiky wealth of winter bear gorse bushes amid which she stood. He stopped, 
You, uh, you left something behind, he said. Aye, she replied. I sometimes do that. But when I do, you can bet I'll come back for it. I, I don't want you coming back after this, he said. I want you to, 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 to take this and go and then leave us alone. Give it to me then, she said. Come on. Don't be scared. He took an awkward step towards her. He held out the scarf with a further stretch of his arm. She took a step of her own, grabbed his wrist, drew him towards her. He tried to pull free. She laughed. And as she laughed, the length of green lace scarf dangling from his grip became a great writhing serpent. The sudden, scaly slither of its movement making him drop it in shock. It hit the ground and slid off into the bushes. Even as James's backward stumbling sent him slipping and falling onto his back on the rough ground. In a second, with her own swift, sinuous movement, Shona threw herself atop him at full length, pinning him there. Her sharp, neared finger teasing itself around his lips. I put my glamour on you, she said. Cast it through and cast it deep, deep as roots. Through the roots the sap flows, sap and blood. The sap in you is mine now, not no wife's. I claim it and I'll kill for it. And you there make no mistake about it. Get, 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 get off me, he said, somehow lacking the strength to actually shove her off. Oh, I'll get off, she replied. I'll go. Who knows better than you? The night is my time. The sweet, sumptuous night. With its wilder, deeper colours. Its wealth like fur and the fragrance of animals and the prize it makes of pale men's dreams. You'll come to me, fixed as a sleepwalker. Up there, let's say, where the moon's sheen spills down in white torrents and shiny rocks. There, my blooded warrior, there we'll meet and blossom and birth and see off this world we share tonight. She began to rise, and that weakness she seemed to have worked through every broken, bloodied fissure in his being became suddenly the strength, the desperate strength with which to, 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 to clutch at her attempt to depart, to drag her down there amid the tangled clutchings at earth of the bush roots, to lie atop her as she had lain atop him and fight her hold over him with kisses of his own. There was a a silent laughter mingled with the kisses she sent back his way and a warmth gathering around them that had nothing to do with late November. He heard a, a crackling, smelled a sweet fragrance like frying butter, thought, is that my soul burning? But no, he, he tore his lips from hers, looked up, the bare and thorny gorse bushes around them were blossoming suddenly, violently, with hundreds of yellow flowers. Even as he looked on, the yellow flowers died away, replaced with tar black seed pods, which crackled as if burning and then popped 
wide and shriveled away, clearing space for a fresh blossoming all over of yellow buds, as if whole seasons of summery life were spreading, rotating through those barren bushes. The scent and the heat stirred into to, to, to renewed kisses, but this time her laughter was fuller, breathier, as she cast her eyes further up the slope. He, he broke apart from her, looked that same way. A couple of convolutions of the slope above, Heather stood staring down at them, past the tops of the now suddenly barren bushes. He looked back down at Shona. She wasn't laughing now. It was plainly enough to smile. To smile with that green serpent slithering by the sprawl on the ground of her black hair. He leapt up, looked to Heather. She was already running back up the slope. He started after her with barely a glance back at Shona. She didn't require a glance. She was running swift in his head. A glamour indeed. <laughs> by, the, by the time he, he gasped his way back up to the giant's graves, his healed wounds aching as if they might reopen, Heather was gone. He started back the way they had come. And before long he caught sight of her, already some way ahead, shifting between a, a brisk walk and little flurries of running. It might have been no immense effort to catch up with her, but he found himself holding back from doing that, in large part because he had no clear idea what he might say to her. Instead he contented himself with following her at a distance, ensuring she navigated that unruly landscape safely, even as a few fat flakes of snow began falling about them. He saw her reach the house, unlock the door, let herself in, and then he increased his own pace, half expecting to find the door locked against him. It was not... It clicked open easily. He stepped inside, drew a breath and uh, called for her. Heather? There was no reply. The downstairs rooms were empty. He drew a deeper breath and started upstairs. He was barely halfway up when he began to catch sounds, sounds of scrapings and small clatterings from behind the closed door of their bedroom. He stepped lightly across the landing, wrapping the door. D darling, the sounds from within, plainly the sounds of Heather making up a, a fire in the grate continued, perhaps a, a little louder. He tensed a moment and then turned the knob of the door. Heather was indeed down on her hands and knees by the hearth, heaping logs in the fireplace. D -d -d Darling, he said, leave it, I'll do that. She kept on doing it herself. Uh, listen, I, I'm, I'm sorry, he continued. I, I, I tripped. I, I fell. She, 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 she took advantage. She took advantage, Heather said quietly, without looking round. It didn't look like that from where I was standing. No, he said. Of course it didn't. Uh, from where I'm standing, it's all rather bewildering too. I'm sure, she replied, now fumbling with matches. She, she, she talked about a, a, a glamour, old Scots word, for the, the spell fairies and such like were said to cast to a, 
well, to, to lure in their victims. <laughs> what? What, she said, you're, you're blaming the fairies now. <laughs> she struck that match, setting it to the crumpled papers she had placed in the fire. No, no, uh, of course not, he said. I, I don't mean it literally, and I, I don't know how she meant it, but listen, I, I didn't want it to happen. I, I, I fought against it happening, hard as I, I fought against anything over in Belgium, but it, but yes, it, it happened all the same, and I, I understand it less than you. You might understand some of it better than me, she replied. The fire catching hold, its glow warming the paleness of her face. You might understand if what I saw was the, the whole of it, or if it helps explain you disappearing last night and her disappearing this morning. He tried to think of a lie that wouldn't insult her or make things worse. He loved her too much to come up with one. What happened, happened, like I say, he said. I, I'm sorry. She turned sharply, grabbing the poker, rising to her feet, confronting him directly for the first time. Are you, darling, she said. That's nice, because I'm sorry too. Sorry we couldn't at least get through the damned honeymoon before the man I loved, the man I cared for, the man I helped heal and longed for a bright future with turned into, into one of those husbands young and naive women like myself get warned about. I, I'm not any kind of a husband, but the man I am, he said. You, you know that man. A, a wounded man, yes, a, a weak man, a, a, a frightened man, more than he'd care for. A, a desperate man, trained hard in, in living moment by moment and grabbing any advantage he could get. I, I've got a lot of bad habits to get out of, I know. And I've got a long, long way to go. And Heather, listen, I'll never get there without you. But what if I'm gone too, she said. For my own sake and sanity, please, he said. Please, don't, don't go, don't. Please, forgive me. I, I promise, promise, she said. And where's the president after one day of marriage for me taking you on trust? We've had more than one day, haven't we? He replied. Think, think of all those months before that, that brought us together. All we shared and we were to what? Abandon all that for the sake of me acting like an idiot for well. Including last night and today. It didn't come to more than, than, than a matter of minutes. I could beat your skull in with this in a matter of seconds. She took a hard step towards him. Holding the poker before her like a poised weapon. And get a serious sympathy vote off the jury. Circumstances considered. The time I'd serve would be less, I dare say, than I'd suffer in a bad marriage. You don't have it in you, Heather. And I have it in me, I think, to be some kind of decent husband to you. If you'll only let me. It's not the moment to be making that kind of case, darling, she said, taking another firm step towards him. And don't ever, ever underestimate what I have in me. That was my mistake until, until just a few moments ago. Heather, get out, she cried. Get out before I surprise myself even more. He backed away. She advanced after him, the poker still outstretched. Ensuring he crossed the threshold. When he had, she slammed the door in his face. Shut out on the cold landing. He heard the poker clatter to the floor. Who, who did you think I was? He called through the door. The same bloody plaster saint those majors stuck their medals on. You should have seen me over there, Heather, the hard reality. No, not just the killing, I mean, the killing and the, the gut-strangling fear of being killed. 
There was likewise the, the things you got up to, those faint, fleeting moments that gave you some freedom behind the lines. Oh, you should have seen the man I made of myself there, Heather. The woman I turned to in the process, the grimy corners where it happened. But it made sense at the time. When you're that close to death, any kind of life feels worth snatching at. It's not pretty. It's not heroic. You wouldn't pin a medal on it. But that's the reality. Not the, the pomp and bloody circumstance elsewhere. The reality of being a, a man like me. And I doubt when the disguises come off there's any other kind. But, but, but Heather, with you, I hoped at least to begin hearing a good bit of what's, what's wrong with this, this heart of mine. Uh, like you help me heal the more, the more prosaic parts of me. Today, last night, I failed. I failed you. I confess it. But here I am, not out there with her, asking you to reach out to this, 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 this twitching carcass like you reached out to it before. And, and, Heather, Heather. At first he could hear nothing on the other side of the door. But... Pressing his ear close, he began to make out a distant sound of weeping. The sort of weeping a soul can so easily lose itself in. And he wondered if she had heard anything he had said. He thought of, of stepping back through the door, embracing her, telling her... But no, no... It might be better to leave her alone a while. He wandered back downstairs, headed into the reception room. It was already getting dark outside and dark and cold inside the house. He began preparing a fire down there, but as he fumbled with logs and sheets of paper, a sound outside Low at first, very, very low, began to reach him, less, it seemed, through his ears than through the, the rhythm of his pulse, particularly where it passed along the line of his various scars. And even as he moved to light a match, a a reddish glow spread suddenly about him. There, in the shadows. He looked to the window. Through its panelled glass he could see. Through the still falling snowflakes. And high above the trees and bushes and glittering sea beyond. A moon. Fuller. Larger than any moon he had seen before. The hue of the moon was scarlet, a red rich as some fabulous jewel the knight was trying to bribe him with. He had seen a moon more or less red as that only once before. When he lay in a battlefield, with his own guts gaping. But the red there had been the, the blood running and puddling in his own eyes. This redness seemed to belong to the wilderness itself, as if declaring a kinship with all that was raw and uncontrollable in him. And likewise, that music, what music was it? Stark, braying woodwinds, rhythms thumped out on logs or rocks, a, a singing like the, like the voices of women or wolves or owls. Whatever music it was, its rhythms now winding themselves 
tight around his pulse, reminded him there on that hearthside rug where the night before his wounded frame had been so shamefully alive. Of the red pleasure Shona had shown him. He stepped to the window. She stood out there, Shona, by the gate, dressed now in a dress of green that shone brilliant in the red moonlight. He wished she wasn't there. He wished the music, wherever it was coming from, wasn't dancing. Some strange, enticing dance with the dread in his spirit. And he wished he were a better, a less desperately needful man. But he sensed it was other wishes that Scarlet Knight was out to fulfil. He walked to the front door opened it, stepped along the path towards her, the night still more richly tinted with scarlet. Now there was no glass between him and it. Shona took his hand. Her touch was warm, warm as her embraces had been the night before. Together, they walked off, off towards the trees, through falling snowflakes, tinted redder than any battlefield's rain of blood. And there we leave this episode of Dance Beneath a Scarlet Moon. I'll see you here next week on Aaron Sound, same time, same place, for the most dramatic episode yet. An episode in which, yes, we finally experience for ourselves that strange and beautiful and enticing and terrifying dance beneath a scarlet moon.